Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist. Today's topic is about oppositional defiant disorder. I thought I would talk a little bit about oppositional defiant disorder and also some research on the topic. Then after that, I'll provide some tougher bluffs, some solitary tougher bluffs, and then I and then I thought I might talk about one of the songs from my band's new album. So first off, what is oppositional defiant disorder? Oppositional defined disorder is something that's often given to children who are oppositional and defiant to their parents and or teachers and or other authority people. Regarding these children, you'll, you'll hear a lot of complaints from parents, from teachers, from coaches, that the child makes an ordeal out of many different issues that they don't need to. But more specifically, I'm going to give you the dsm for criteria for oppositional defiant disorder, or otherwise known as ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. Now, the DSM-5 is coming out next month, I think. They might change the criteria. I don't think they are. In fact, I have a book on this. Let me just grab it and see if they say anything about it. I have a book that comes out before DSM-5 that talks about the different changes, and um, so let me see if they have anything to say about ODD. So it appears that in the DSM-5, which is coming out next month, ODD is not going to be changed, at least from a quick scan of the material that I have. Okay, so in the DSM-4, and apparently also with the upcoming DSM-5, oppositional defiant disorder is defined as a pattern of negativistic, hostile, and defiant behavior lasting at least six months during which four or more are present out of the following eight criteria. One, often loses temper. Two, often argues with adults. Three, often actively defies or refuses to comply with adults' requests or rules. Four, often deliberately annoys people. Five, often blames others for his or her mistakes or misbehavior. Six, is often touchy or easily annoyed by others. Seven, is often angry and resentful, and eight, is often spiteful or seeks revenge. So if four or more of those eight criteria are present for at least six months, then that person qualifies for the diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder. Now, some of the critique I've heard of this disorder is people will say, well, isn't that just a normal kid? Aren't all kids defiant? Aren't all kids oppositional? And to which I would say, yes, that's true. But to qualify for the disorder, it has to present a problem in their life, and they have to be above a certain threshold. So the diagnosis really can only be given by an experienced clinician. It has to be someone who understands how to diagnose, and it has to be given by someone who understands normative child behavior and what is outside of that range of normal child behavior. In my own experience, I've certainly run into children who qualify for this disorder. So again, the criteria have to do with getting angry, losing your temper, arguing, defying things when it doesn't make a lot of sense. People with ODD, to me, can be described very quickly by the following criteria that I sort of have in my mind. And that is is that there are people who defy rules even when it doesn't serve them. They oppose things even when, in the end, it doesn't really do them any good and creates a lot of ill will around them. And they seem to almost compulsively oppose people. 
you know, it's normal for kids to say, want to get away with something. They steal a cookie out of the cookie jar and they eat it. And mom says, Hey, where's the cookie? Did you take it? And the kid says, no, that that's, you know, often a normal process, but with, with kids with ODD, they'll do something right in front of the parents. They'll take a cookie out of the cookie jar right in front of the parents and say, what? I didn't take it. And not all kids with ODD do that, but that's just an example of how far uh, it can go, how far outside of the range. Also, kids with ODD tend to be very resentful and spiteful and, and will scheme at ways to get revenge against people. They seem to be almost preoccupied with competing with other people in this way and create a lot of ill will again with other people. Parents with ODD children are very frustrated. Not only are they dealing with a kid who opposes them often, which stresses them out, but when they seek help, a lot of people will blame them unnecessarily. Some ODD kids, one could hypothesize, are being oppositional and defiant because of the way they were parented. But in my experience, some kids have ODD even though their parents did quote-unquote all the right things. Now, why do those kids that were raised well have ODD? I, you know, again, I, I could go into the various different hypotheses, but there's not a lot of good theory out there about this sort of thing. It's difficult to nail down the determinants of personality and behavior in humans, and you know, the science just isn't really there. And, and I doubt it ever will be, because the brain and our social conduct is extremely complex, and there's so many factors that go into it, it's, it's really hard to tell. Even when you're doing everything right as a parent. Sometimes kids interpret things a little differently than others and things can get started down a wrong path. So, and I'll get into the research more on that later. So again, oppositional defiant disorder is not applied to kids who are breaking rules within a normal range or who are perhaps just a little bit more rebellious than other kids. I can pretty much guarantee you that if you were to hang out with one of the kids that I diagnosed with ODD, you would realize within, you know, an hour or two that something was different about that child, that their rebelliousness was not within normal limits and they weren't just simply willful children. There was something different about the way that they interacted with others and the way that they thought about authority and the way that they thought about rules. Now, there are many different differential diagnoses to ODD to be considered when these sorts of behaviors are observed in people. Mood disorders come to mind. Conduct disorder comes to mind. ADHD comes to mind. Even anxiety can appear as ODD. So there are lots of different other diagnoses to consider when you have a child who is breaking a lot of rules and who is negative a lot. So why are we concerned with ODD? Well, oppositional defiant disorder is one of the most common reasons why people come into therapy. I have seen a lot of families who have teenagers with ODD. According to some recent research, oppositional defiant disorder is the second most prevalent psychiatric disorder of childhood and the most common reason for why people come into therapy. The prevalence rates of ODD range from 2 to 14%, depending on the study. So of all U.S. children, you know, it's about 2% to 14% of children have ODD. And I imagine that that range is uh, so large because it depends on the thresholds at which you define as qualifying for the disorder. But anyway, again, research has shown that ODD is the second most prevalent psychiatric disorder in children, and it's the most common reason why people bring their children into therapy. I think it's the second most prevalent psychiatric disorder behind ADHD, but I'm not sure. Now, to those of you that aren't in this 
world, it might be surprising that ODD is the most common reason why children are brought brought into therapy. You know, you might have thought it was ADHD, for instance, or depression. I, I think the reason for this is because ODD is very frustrating and stressful for parents. When you have a kid who is breaking a lot of rules and being very vindictive and is seemingly shooting themselves in the foot by breaking a lot of rules, parents get concerned and they feel like they need to do something. So getting to the bad effects of ODD, research has shown that disruptive behavior problems have been associated with several adverse developmental outcomes, including lower grades, lower achievement scores, in-school suspensions, school dropout, school delinquency, uh, school maladjustment, antisocial activity, substance use, sexual activity, peer rejection, family conflict, and future antisocial behavior. So in other words, if you have a child with ODD, chances are there's going to be a number of issues that are going to happen in the future if they already haven't happened, including lots of school problems, antisocial problems, peer problems, family problems. So it's important to address ODD as soon as possible. Uh, Another study, another recent study showed that ODD can often lead to depression, which makes a lot of sense because if you have ODD and you have this style of interacting with people, which is hostile and and negative, then it's it's likely that your life is is going to be negatively impacted. People are going to start rejecting you. You're going to start reacting to you by rejecting you or even being hostile back at you. And that's going to make you sad and it's going to lead to a lot of unhappiness. And so people often become depressed as a result of ODD. Now, some might say, well, if a kid has ODD and they're headed towards doom, well, so be it. I mean, there's nothing we can do, right? Well, according to research, when they study ODD symptoms in individual children, they find that it fluctuates throughout their childhood lives, you know, so, you know, they might be very oppositional at age seven, and then uh, not so oppositional at age 10, and, and so on. So, it seems to be related to development, meaning that it can emerge and it can interact with their surroundings or maybe even their surroundings are interacting with a child causing the ODD symptoms. And so this lends itself to therapy, to family therapy, to individual therapy, to looking at the issues that are facing the family and the individual and trying to help them with that so that the ODD can recede. ODD is definitely not a fixed diagnosis. There are some disorders that seem to stick around and, and don't respond to therapy, but ODD, I think, responds to therapy quite well. For instance, some people might say that conduct disorder, which is another disorder for children and teenagers, does not respond to therapy very well. And, and I might agree with that to some extent. But ODD is not one of those disorders that doesn't respond to therapy very well. All right, so let's get to some of the research. A study that came out last year, 2012, by some Australian researchers, their names are Duncombe, Havinghurst, Holland, and Frankling, published in Child Psychiatry and Human Development, titled The Contribution of Parenting Practices and Parent Emotional Factors in Child at Risk for Disruptive Behavior Disorders. So this study looked at disruptive behavior disorders, and this is an an umbrella term for conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, and ADHD. It's a little problematic, in my view, to lump all three of those into one category, 
but that's what a lot of people are doing, so whatever. So the goal of this study in 2012 was to elaborate on the established research examining the impact of different parenting characteristics on child disruptive behavior and emotional regulation. So they wanted to answer the question, do parenting practices and parenting emotional variables yield both unique and cumulative effects on measures of child disruptive behavior problems and emotional regulation? So again, in a nutshell, they just wanted to see if parenting practices affected ODD. Parenting practices like the way parents dealt with emotions themselves and how mentally healthy they were. And they looked at parenting practices like how warm the parent is or how punitive the parent is. So the theory that they use when looking at families is as follows. The theory goes, emotional competence of children is essential for adaptive behavioral functioning. This is sort of a new idea in, in my experience that in order for children to develop normally and to interact with others adaptively, they have to have emotional competence. They have to know how to identify emotions. They need to understand their own emotions. They need to understand others' emotions. They need to be able to regulate their emotions. These are important skills, and it's thought that parents teach these children these skills. And if parents have these skills and have a good way of teaching their children these skills, then the children tend to develop those skills and therefore tend to do better in life. And to support this theory, past research has shown that children who are at risk of serious behavior problems have difficulties with these skills. And again, these skills are emotional identification, so identifying emotions in yourself and other people understanding your own emotions, understanding other people's emotions, and being able to regulate your emotions. Children with these skills tend to be less at risk of behavior problems. And specifically the way parents socialize children to learn these skills is through modeling these emotional expressions and regulation. So one of the ways parents you know, can teach this, the, the skills to the kids is to show them how they deal with the emotions themselves, the parents will say, I'm very angry right now, and I'm very hurt by what you said. And by being able to model to the children how to deal with emotions, children learn that way. Another way that socialization occurs is by direct coaching. So uh, parents can directly coach how to identify and cope with emotions. So parents can see a child who's angry and say, it looks like you're very angry. Maybe a good way to deal with that is to tell me about your anger and not to throw a rock at little Johnny on the playground. And the third way that parents socialize their children with these skills is through parental reinforcement of emotional expression. So a child says, I'm very sad that uh, the cat died. And the parents can reward the children by saying, by responding well to the children, say, you're a very mature little, little girl to be able to say that. Or a child chooses to express anger with his words instead of with violence, and, and the parents reward that child with something that the child wants. So again, modeling, coaching, and reinforcing are the ways that parents socialize these skills, these emotional skills in children. And again, the theory is, is that with these skills, there's less disruptive behavior in the children. So in the study by Duncombe, Havinghurst, Holland, and Frankling, they used the following method. Again, they're Australian, so they gathered together almost 5,000 Australian parents to consent to this study. A parent and a teacher of the children completed a behavioral checklist with items such as, how often does the child fight with other children and bully them? 
another question they asked the parent or teacher was, does he or she get in trouble for not following the rules? So from those almost 5,000 families, they narrowed it down to the 373 children with the most behavioral problems, as reported by the parents and teachers. So the full sample size was eventually 373 children between the ages of five and nine. 74% were boys and 26% were girls. And this statistic matches other research that shows that of children with disruptive behavior, the vast majority are boys as opposed to girls. The sample consisted of 95% Caucasian with 5% other. When I first read this, I thought, why did they exclude so many non-white people? But when I looked up the cultural demographics of Australia, this actually reflects the overall population in Australia. I didn't realize that Australia was so dominantly white, but I guess it is. And maybe I didn't read it right. So to the parents of the 373 children, they sent a bunch of questionnaires measuring the child's emotional and behavioral functioning, measuring the parent's mental health, measuring the parent's emotional beliefs and behaviors, uh, more questionnaires measuring the level of emotional expressiveness, and measuring parenting practices. An interesting part of the method was that the questionnaires were completed by the child's quote-unquote primary caregiver, who in a majority of the families was the mother. 92% of the questionnaires were filled out by the mother and not the father because the family decided that the mother was the quote-unquote primary caregiver. So it's just something to keep in mind. In addition to the questionnaires that the parents filled out, questionnaires were also completed by the child's teacher regarding the child's emotional regulation and behavioral functioning. All right, so what, what were the results? The main findings of the study were that parenting practices defined by inconsistent discipline and corporal punishment were associated with the development of serious child problem behavior and emotional dysregulation. So let me just say that again. One of the main findings of the study was that when parents were inconsistent with their discipline and used corporal punishment, meaning physical punishment, spanking, this sort of thing, these parenting practices were associated with the development of problem behavior in the children and emotional dysregulation. Now, does that mean that corporal punishment is always going to produce bad effects in children? No, but that was one of the factors that, that seemed to be associated with, with it. Um, my guess is, is that corporal punishment in and of itself isn't bad, but corporal punishment is probably associated with a lot of other kind of parenting practices like criticizing children, putting them down, uh, maybe even other issues in the parent's life. Why, you know, why would they become so out of control that they would need to use that kind of punishment? You know, there's a lot of factors that go into this, I'm guessing, and all those factors probably affect the children. Another, another important finding of the study was that when, when parents have depression, anxiety, and stress, this was found to be a significant predictor of parent-related child disruptive behavior and emotional dysregulation. So again, when, when parents suffered from depression, anxiety, and stress, this seemed to predict disruptive behavior in children and emotional dysregulation in the children. This makes a lot of sense, right? If you're depressed and you have a lot of stress in your life as a parent, you're not going to have the resources to parent children in a way that you would be able to do if you weren't depressed and stressed. And this seems to affect children by increasing their emotional difficulties and increasing their disruptive behavior in general. Another finding of the study was that parent emotional coaching was associated with fewer disruptive behavior problems. So when parents were coaching their children regarding their emotions, this seemed to lower the disruptive behavior problems in children. Another finding was that parent emotional dismissing predicted child disruptive behavior. 
So when parents dismissed the emotion of the children, when they rejected and dismissed child emotionality, this predicted a increase in child disruptive behavior. Another finding was that children whose parents provided positive emotional expression and supportive responses to their emotion were less likely to exhibit disruptive behavior because of their tendency to engage in effective self-regulation. Another finding was that negative parental affect predicted child emotional dysregulation. So when parents exhibited a lot of negative feelings themselves, it seemed to predict a lot of negative feelings and inability to cope with feelings uh, in the children. So it would seem from this data and from this theory that in order to help children with their oppositional defiant disorder symptoms, one of the best ways you can treat it is to help the parents. The best way I can help a family with a teenager is not to see that teenager individually, but it it is to help the parents help the child. Children are so much a part of their parents' lives. If the parents change, the children will change too. And if they only bring in that child to therapy for an hour a week, that's only one hour to do something. And if you're trying to change a child, but the system doesn't change, if the family system stays the same, then that child's behavior will return after the session. Whereas if you change the system, then the child's behavior is more likely to change in a long-lasting way. So for instance, a, a family brings in a 14-year-old child that's exhibiting a lot of ODD symptoms. What do you do? Well, you know, it really depends. About, but according to this theory, you could help the parents help their children with their emotions. So you would assess how the parents react to the child's emotions. You would assess how the parents teach their children about emotions. You would assess how the parents feel about their own emotions. And through that coaching, you can coach the parents to coach their child to have more emotional skills the thinking is, is that those emotional skills taught by the parents to the child will reduce the oppositional defiant symptoms. All right, so that was one research study about oppositional defiant disorder. Now let's go on to Tougher Bluff. This is the first time I've done Tougher Bluff by myself, so uh, basically I'm just going to read them and then provide a little pause for you to make a choice as to whether or not you think I'm toughing or bluffing. All the following Tougher Bluffs come from the APA monitor. So Tougher Bluff... Men born without a sense of smell had more sexual partners. So again, tougher bluff. Men born without a sense of smell had more sexual partners. That's kind of a weird tougher bluff, right? It's kind of a weird statement. It's like, what would sense of smell have to do with sexual partners? So what do you think about that? Am I toughing or am I bluffing? Well, I am bluffing. The true statement is men born without a sense of smell without a sense of smell, had fewer sexual partners. Men who can smell reported an average of nine sexual partners over a lifetime. Men born without a sense of smell reported having only three. So again, men with normal smelling abilities had nine sexual partners, and men born with no sense of smell reported having only three. That's a little weird, right? But what about women? Non-smelling women reported no fewer partners than women who could smell. However, women who could not smell reported being more insecure in their relationships. So it seems that if you can't smell, if you're a man, you have less sexual partners. And if you can't smell and you're a woman, then you'll have the same amount of sexual partners, but you'll be more insecure in your relationships. The thinking behind this is that if you lack a sense of smell, this may cause you to miss important social cues, resulting in relationship difficulties. 
Mm, two more tougher bluffs. How about that? Tougher bluff. According to research, three-year-olds have been found to not yet understand when adults are making a mistake. Again, according to research, three-year-olds have been found to not yet understand when adults are making a mistake. Am I toughing or am I bluffing? Can three-year-olds figure out when adults are making mistakes? Do they, do they understand the world well enough yet to detect a mistake in the parents? Well, I'm bluffing because according to research, most three-year-olds have been found to understand when adults are making a mistake. So in this laboratory experiment, they had adults reaching for an empty box of crayons or putting on a wet sweatshirt when the parent says, I'm cold, and you know they're going to put something on. And they measured whether or not the child would respond and say, no, 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 that box doesn't have any crayons in it. Don't, don't reach for it or don't put on that wet jacket. You're going to get cold. And they found that most three-year-olds were able to do that. All right, one more tougher bluff. Tougher bluff. According to research, nearly three-quarters of polled psychotherapists reported they cried during a session with a client. So again, nearly three-quarters of psychotherapists reported they had cried during a session with a client. So do you believe that 75% of therapists have cried at some point during a session with a client? This one is tough. It is true that 75% of psychotherapists have reported that they have cried during a session with a client. This actually doesn't surprise me. Over the course of one's career, you're going to run into a lot of situations that are going to provoke that sort of feeling in you as a therapist. Things like saying goodbye to a client. I have a supervisee of mine right now that has to leave the state and she has to terminate with all of her clients and a lot of them are kids. And she is already crying about that, just thinking about having to terminate with them. Imagine she's in session with them and and they're saying, oh, I'm going to miss you and I don't want you to leave. She's going to be crying for weeks on end saying goodbye to all these clients. So, So, you know, you can certainly understand that. There are times when I've had tears of joy, when I see people loving each other, when I see people giving to each other, being charitable, that that can produce tears of joy in me. There's also obviously a lot of sadness that people will talk about, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, and it's natural to tear up a little bit. I think it's only human. Now, clinically speaking, it's important for therapists to understand what the crying does to the, to the client. When I talk with supervisees about this, I, I tell them, what I try to do is I try to help them to think about whether or not it's helpful or unhelpful. There are some circumstances where it would be unhelpful to cry in front of a client. And there are degrees of crying. There are different kinds of crying. There's welling up with tears because you feel someone else's pain. And then there's sobbing because you yourself as a therapist feel your own pain from your own life. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's important to be cognizant of it and to seek supervision about things like that. Because one example of harmful crying in a session would be a client is talking about their trauma, they were raped or something, and this triggers in the therapist their own traumatic history, and they feel their own pain, and they haven't resolved it yet, which is understandable. But it emerges for them, the therapist, in the session, and they start sobbing because because their own trauma has been triggered. And suddenly now the client is worried about the therapist and is now trying to care for the therapist. Well, when you have a shift like that, it's, it's not inherently a bad thing, but it usually compromises the relationship and the trust that the client has for the therapist. Not always, but I would say in general, it's probably a result of that kind of crying in session. 
Now, does that mean if a therapist does that, that it's game over? No. You see consultation, supervision, you revisit it with the ther- with the client again the next week, and you say, last week I, I cried uncontrollably. What, what do you think about that? Therapists might even apologize for it. There's no shame in making a mistake as a therapist. There's only shame in not addressing that mistake. All right, so let's go on to stage three. This is the last phase of the podcast here. The band I'm in, Bread Knife Incident, just completed our third album and posted it on iTunes. It's actually not up yet, but I think it will be soon. I've never really promoted the band that much on the podcast, but uh, some people said that they thought I should. So I'm timidly doing so. I I don't feel comfortable being sleazy about (laughs) my band, but I figure it's at the end of the episode. And if you're sick of this, you can just turn it off and move on. But if you're interested, I'm going to play the second song off the album. In the last episode, I talked about the first song on the new album. The the new album is called Cozy, and this is the second song. Let me just play a clip from it. So that's just a little clip from the middle of the song. It's an instrumental song, actually. The way I write songs usually is I sit down on the couch with my acoustic guitar and I just start playing things and, you know, something kind of emerges. With this song, I actually wrote it on the keyboard. If you're not a songwriter, I guess to put it into another form of art like painting, it would be like grabbing the brush, kind of throwing it into some random color and just start randomly start brushing across the canvas and and then building off whatever happens. That that's sort of the way that I wrote this song was that I just I didn't know where I was going, but I just started kind of randomly doing things and then built upon that randomness and refined it until I, I got what it what it ended up being. And so in this song, it really has two different messages, so to speak. In the beginning, it has kind of a soft, relaxed message and then Halfway through the bit, it changes to a more aggressive, kind of forward-leaning message, I think. And let me, let me play that transition from the laid-back message to the forward-leaning message. So I don't know what to make of this song. I don't know how to really categorize it in my mind. I just know that I like listening to it myself and I liked creating it. And so I decided to make it the second song on the new album by Bread Knife Incident. And the new album is called Cozy and it's available on iTunes and other places like Zune and, you know, all the various stores. Amazon, I think, might sell it too. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me this week. It's been lovely. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. If you're a therapist, make sure you check in with yourself and don't get burnt out. Don't try to take on more than you can. Remember that if you have too much stress in your life, bad things can happen. It's it's very real. Uh, I just, a supervisee of mine had a medical emergency and we surmised that it was because he was taking on too many clients and he was not getting enough emotional support. I've seen that happen time and time again. So please 
take care of yourself because you're worth it. All right. See you next week. Thank you.